Beth. His family house. Tenth floor. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. Rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Okay, good stuff. Well, we're getting started, but I forgot to hook up the chair. So Sergio is telling me that... Uh, hook up the chair. Hook up the chair. So I apologize. This is my fault. Anybody watching, you can laugh, do whatever. It's my fault. Okay, I got the chair hooked up. We'll see if it works now. Is it going to work? Sergio, is the chair working? I forgot. There it is. Oh, it's working. Okay, good. I'm so sorry about that. That's me. I've been here for four hours. You think I'd remember that in four I've hours? Never but done that before. No. Oh, well, whatever. It is what it is. Okay, the chair's working. Apologies, and we will get into. Let me move this so I know that for next week. And we'll go ahead and read. Today is what the ninth, the eighth, ninth. Oh, and it's not August too. It's July. July ninth <clears throat> says some men are afraid to show their feelings. Alexander Duff was born in Scotland in 1806, the son of a godly Gaelic-speaking farmer. He was raised on a spiritual diet of Fox's Book of Martyrs and the Gaelic poetry of Dugald Buchanan. Buchanan's best-known poem, The Day of Judgment, so alarmed young Alexander that he had a terrifying dream of humanity's being summoned before God's judgment seat. He watched terror-stricken as God's sentence was pronounced on one person after another, wondering what God's pronouncement on him would be. He awoke trembling, but it was out of that experience that he came to an assurance of his acceptance by God through the redeeming blood of Christ. While at St. Andrew's University, Duff became interested in foreign missions and accepted the call to be the Church of Scotland's first missionary to India. Duff had given no thought to marriage during his university years or even after accepting his missionary call. After hearing Duff explain this, an elderly Christian gentleman replied, Well, my advice to you is be quietly on the lookout, and if, in God's providence, you make the acquaintance of one of the daughters of Zion, traversing, like yourself, the wilderness of this world, her face set thitherward, get into friendly converse, converse with her. If you find that in mind, in heart, in temper, and disposition you congenialize, and if God puts it into your heart to be willing to forsake father and mother and cast in her lot with you, regard it as a token from God of providence that you should use the proper means to secure her Christian society. Somehow Duff grasped the meaning of this advice, and on 9 July 1827 married Anne Scott Drysdale. They congenialized for nearly 50 years. Duff was ordained in August 1829 and sailed with Anne for Calcutta in October. During the voyage, they survived two shipwrecks, including one in which he lost his personal library, a tremendous loss for a missionary educator. Upon arriving, Duff set about to reach the upper castes by means of higher education. His plan was to teach Western arts and sciences along with the Bible to the elite of India and within a few months, he opened his school with five students. 
News of the school spread like wildfire, and by the end of the week, 300 more had applied. In the school's first decade, it advanced average 800. Duff's College, as it was known, became the largest mission school in India. Duff was more successful educationally than evangelistically. Only 33 conversions were recorded among his students. Yet almost all of the converts became influential Christians in India. He was also a great missionary statesman and orator who influenced hundreds to volunteer for missionary work and tens of thousands to contribute to their support. Duff was a sober, humorless Presbyterian whose achievements were made through great sacrifices by his wife and family. Yet a missionary never had a more dedicated wife than Anne. She was the family's source of affection and joy. We get a glimpse into the family dynamics when we read their youngest son's description of being left behind in England as a teenager when his parents were returning to India. He said, I well remember how my mother's and my own heart were well nigh breaking and how London Bridge, my father possessed himself at London Bridge, my father possessed himself in the morning's times and left us to cry our hearts out in sorrow. Anne Duff died in England after a brief illness in 1865. With uncharacteristic warmth, Duff wrote his son in India of his mother's death. The most loving, lovable, and beloved of wives and mothers is now one of the bright spirits that shines in white array in the realms above. Alexander Duff was blessed with a wife who complimented his own emotional shortcomings, but he had been able to move to more freely express his feelings to his wife and children Family life may have been more rewarding for all of them. Do you ever have trouble showing your love? God wants us to communicate our love for one another. He sent his son as the ultimate demonstration of his love for us. And they cite 1 John 3.18, let us stop saying we love each other. Let us really show it by our actions. <laughs> well, that guy brought people to Christ and missionaries in India. We got some people from India that attend right online. They watch our video. So if you're there right now, or if you're watching this later, we love you. And uh, uh, there you go. Let's see here. Um, yeah, I, I get this these stats from uh, from uh, Google of everything that goes on on the website and YouTube. And I don't usually look at them, but I kind of scrolled through them anyway last week. And I think the number two country that watches is India. It might have been number three, but it's surprising. You got the U.S. and you got people in countries all over, but they rank them by how many, and I think India was number two. So, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Congenialize. Congenialize. There's a word I haven't used. Yeah, no, I haven't used congenialize in a long ever. That's for sure. Oh, we got a couple prayer requests, and we'll get started. Um, prayers requested for Peter, Malachi, Genevieve, and John. And Jeremy and Tanya had their fourth miscarriage, and she's really obviously distressed over that. Uh, Kim's son is um, in CRNA school, and there's maybe a problem with completion due to the COVID that she was, she's praying that uh, that won't happen, and we'll pray with her on that. And then after that, she's hoping for a job offer for him in the Durham area. And it's kind of funny the way she said it. He wants just one offer. He doesn't want more offers because if he gets two, it's going to make it complicated for him. So she's being very precise with her prayers on that. And so we'll pray for that. Lisa's neighbor is struggling with possible job loss and financial ruin because of uh, the thing that's going on in Australia, which is going on everywhere else. And she said he's gay. 
and she's hoping to have the right chance to talk to him about Jesus. So he's not distressed about job, about life, and it's certainly not about his life choices, but that he will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So that's on her heart. And uh, we also have all the people that uh, on the list of uh, names of people that uh, are looking for uh, prayer for family members or friends that don't know Christ. And so we'll pray for all of them right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to pray for these prayer requests and any others that are on the hearts of anybody listening or that's uh, going to watch this later. If they have something that they're uh, timid to bring to you about, I hope that they would understand that they can come boldly to the throne of grace and uh, make their petitions to you because of what Christ has done. And so we certainly lift up these people, these things, we, these issues, and we place them before you asking for a favorable response in all of them, especially the ones for people that need Christ in our lives and in the lives of those that have submitted their requests. And Lord, we uh, pray that this class will be edifying to people, that uh, the book of Galatians will be handled properly and that we will teach it correctly and that people will understand especially the heresy of uh, Hebrew roots returning to the law, that uh, it is something that we cannot condone in the church and we need to be very firm about that. And so open our eyes to see that in your word, which is permeates the book of Galatians. And uh, just we pray that if anything is said that's wrong, that people would be alerted to that and they would not be uh, led astray by it. And we pray these things that you'll be glorified and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, we are in Galatians 1, verse 17. Paragraph. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, uh, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But... When God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles, or I was, but I was immediately, I went immediately to Arabia and later returned to, to Damascus. Okay, there you go, 17. Now, what happened last week, and the people that watched this on the edited version didn't see this, but I got my pages wrong, and I actually started reading the commentary from verse 17, and I knew it was wrong, and I finally caught it. The people that struggled through the class saw that, and that I knew something was wrong, and finally, after a minute or two, I realized it, so I cut all that out, and people that watched the uh, video, the edited video on YouTube, don't have to suffer through that, but the comments on 117 are... Let's see here. <clears throat> Paul continues to reveal his qualifications as an apostle who is to be trusted in the message he brought to Galatia. Okay, we've been talking about that. Paul has said that he advanced, you know, beyond others in Judaism. He's setting his record for everybody to understand. I was what these people claim to be that are coming and trying to twist your minds. I got out of that and I understand the grace of Jesus Christ, and you need to go back and you need to understand it. That's the context of what he's telling us right now. In the previous verse, <clears throat> he said that he did not confer with flesh and blood. This was to show that what he received was superior to anything taught by fallen, fallible man. Instead, he received his instructions from a divine source. He continues with this thought now saying, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. 
as they were flesh and blood men, it would seem superfluous to say this, but it is not. Their training had come from the Lord. They were personally selected and commissioned by him, talking about the apostles in Jerusalem. Therefore, had he gone to them in Jerusalem, it would not be contradictory to his previous words. And yet, it would also mean that he felt it necessary to have his commission testified to by them. He did not. Instead, his words, who were apostles before me, clearly implied that he was to be considered an apostle. Having been selected by the same divine source as they had, and having received his full apostolic commission from him, he did not require men to confirm what the Lord had established. Instead of going to them, he went to Arabia. This clause, I'm sorry, where am I here? That's, uh, yes, this clause consisting of just a few words is one of the most highly debated set of words to be found in Paul's life and travels. At this point, the conversion and early ministry of Paul needs to be cited from Acts 9, 17 through 22. So let me read you that right now. Acts 9, 17 through 22. And once again, the words that we're evaluating are, instead, he went to Arabia. Just a couple words, and yet it has caused all kinds of people all kinds of consternation. Acts 9, 17 through 22. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received a sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Okay, here's where it's kind of funny. He's in Damascus, and then it says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is, not, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Paul but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, there seems to be no room in what I just read you in Luke's account in Acts for Paul's words here in Galatians. He said he went down to Arabia. However, Luke was concerned with Paul's ministry in a particular way. Recording this trip to Arabia was not a necessary part of that. The trip to Arabia would fit logically in the middle of verse 19 of Acts 9. So I'm going to read you that. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Goes to Arabia. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And then from there, he goes out and preaches in the synagogues. It's the only logical place that his visit to Arabia will fit. But Luke is not worried about that. He's concerned about Paul's ministry and what is happening with the establishment of the church. So Everything that Paul did down in Arabia is just simply brushed over. <clears throat> now, there are other views on this. Don't get me wrong. There are people that say, well, it happened here, it happened there. But this is what I see as the best view of that particular issue, is that it fits the account. If you just take the notion that Luke is talking about the ministry, and you go from there. Okay, so understanding that as Paul did not confer with flesh and blood, as he said, it is probable that he immediately felt his calling to go to Arabia and then return after that. He's not conferring with flesh and blood. Well, where did he confer? He conferred with the Lord. The Lord somehow, as he did throughout the book of Acts, imposed or came to Paul or maybe in a dream or however he related to Paul. I need you to come to Arabia. I'm going to teach you something 
entirely new. You're going to be the herald of a message that the people of Israel have not even imagined, and that's that the Jews will, I'm sorry, the Gentiles will receive Jesus Christ, and the message will go out to them prominently. Now, what's his name? Peter, I, by this time, has probably already spoken to, uh, uh, what's his name, Cornelius, or not Cornelius, Ju uh, Cornelius. Cornelius, yes, okay, in Acts chapter 10, etc., so they had an idea that Gentiles would be grafted in, but they didn't understand the scope of it. Paul was the one to get that message. You got something, Burke? No. Oh, okay. I saw your hand moving, and so I thought maybe you were... Uh, My you were... Oh, okay. He's got an itch. He's got an itch. Okay, here we go. So, um, And so this brings in the next fundamental question. Where in Arabia? This is something I brought up a couple classes ago, but it's important to bring up again. Arabia of Paul's day was considerably different than that of Saudi Arabia today. As it is only referred to one other time in the New Testament, which is Galatians 4.25, all we have is that one verse to give us a clue as to where Paul went. <clears throat> in that verse, Paul says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. For this reason, we can logically, although not dogmatically, suppose that Paul went to the very spot where Moses received the law and where Elijah was drawn to after his great ordeal with the prophets of Baal, okay? Both of those people, men of God, you had Moses and Elijah. They were standing there with Jesus, you know, in the mountain in uh, the of transfiguration. Both of them received some schooling from the Lord on Mount Sinai. It is logical. We can't dogmatically make this leap, but it is logical that Paul went to the same place to receive the same revelation. For whatever reason, God chose that place to give that particular uh, instruction to Moses and the people of Israel and also to Elijah. It makes sense that he would go there too. Okay, um, the prophets of Baal, if you want to read that story, that is in uh, 1 Kings 19. Elijah uh, has a great uh, battle spiritual battle against the 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, they call on their God, nothing happens. Elijah steps forward and simply speaks the word, calls out to the Lord, and the Lord accepts his sacrifice, fire comes from heaven, etc. That's a great story if you want to read it, if you've never read it. But from there, the next day, I think it is the next day, maybe later in the same day, but I think it's the next day, is a woman threatens his life and he gets scared and he runs away. So it shows you that there's a point where we have a, a, a breaking point, okay? Here he just went through this great contest with 450 prophets of Baal. He was brave and, and fulfilled his commission, and the next day he, he's obviously so worn out that the threat of the king's wife causes him to flee. And so he ends up fleeing all the way down to Mount Sinai in Arabia, and there he meets with the Lord, and the Lord tells him what he's going to do, okay? So um, it is logical to assume that Paul went there as well, okay? There's no reason to dismiss this and a valid reason to accept it. Regardless of this, though, after his time in Arabia, it says he returned again to Damascus. This then would be in line with the words of Acts 19, or 9.19, that he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So he left Damascus, went back to Damascus, spent some time with them, saying, I've met with the Lord, whatever he told him, and then eventually he went on with the rest of his, uh, what we'll talk about. The time of his divine instruction is hidden in part, and yet it is revealed here in his few words to the wayward churches in Galatia. For those who are willing to understand and accept his words, they would see that the same God who had given the law to Moses had also given the instructions to Paul for his apostolic ministry to the Gentiles. 
Thus, the gospel of grace stands on the same level as the authority of authority as the law of Moses, but it also stands in replacement of it. And the reason why I say it's on the same level as the law of Moses is because the law of Moses was received by Moses, a prophet, and it established a covenant between the people of uh, Israel and the Lord. That's what Jesus did. He established a new covenant with the people of Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. What's that? Jeremiah 31, 31. And so because of that, it stands on the same level, but it is a replacement of the first. And that's the point that these people need to understand that he is telling them in Galatia. And once again, it's the point that is being conveyed to the church in the letter of Galatians to the people of the church forever including today and including people that try to draw people back into the law of Moses. We're going to see the consequences of it, but I can't stress it enough. The importance of understanding that we are not under law. The law is set aside. It is obsolete. It is uh, uh, annulled. Thank you. It is nailed to the cross. Paul makes it abundantly clear in the book of Romans as well. Go back and watch the Roman studies. There's like three or four of them. You'll be done with the book in a few minutes, but kidding, of course. But the, he says that we are not under law, we are under grace, etc. So he goes all through that time and time again in his writings, and it cannot be said enough, the importance of not going back to the law of Moses. If you do, if you say I'm under law and I have to meet the demands of the law, then that means that you are accepting the imputation of sin. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's, it is, it's verse 19, he says that uh, in Christ we are not being imputed sin. Some uh, translations will say God is not counting men's sins against them. If you are under law, God is counting your sins against you, okay? The wages of sin is death, and death is eternal separation from God. That's the consequences of being under the law and not under grace, okay? So we have to, we have to understand that, and we have to keep drilling it into our heads. No law, all right? Life application. <clears throat> Bible study is hard work, but it is greatly rewarding. Study your Bible. 118. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. Okay, this one simply says to see Peter. Okay, I like get acquainted better. I don't know if it's a different word now. Anyway, in the uh, uh, one of the texts, it says Kephas instead of Peter. Okay, that's just a small difference between um, source documents. But Anyway, um, 118, Paul is being exceptionally methodical in his words here for a reason. He has already established that the gospel he preached was neither received from man, nor was he taught it. He further gave the timeline of what occurred after his occur conversion, including his trip to Arabia. Now he says that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. This three years is probably from his original conversion and not from the later events, which included his return from Damascus, okay? The purpose of the visit was to, as he says, see Peter, or as that says, get acquainted with Peter. This seems innocuous enough, but there is exacting purpose in why he says this. First, the word rendered to see is an uncommon one, being found only here in the New Testament. It is historial. One can see the germ of our modern word, history. history, that's right, in it. It is what one does in order to ascertain information by a personal examination and inquiry. For example, it is the word one would use when 
visiting a great city to find out all about it. You're going to do a history of the city. You want to know about it? That's what you're going to do. Scholars puzzle over why Peter is singled out, but understanding what Paul writes about Peter in chapter 2 clears up the reason. I don't know why anybody would be confused about it. It's perfectly evident because he's going to introduce the faults of Peter in chapter 2, and he's saying that I got to know him, and then he is the one that shrinked back from the man that I got to know. It's very clear. Peter is noted as one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2 verse 9. It may seem peculiar that his words are directed only at Peter, but this direct directed line of wording is given as a buildup to the events of Galatians 2, 11 through 13. In other words, Paul is continuing to establish his apostleship and the truth of the gospel message he preaches, showing that it is on the same level of authority as that of any of the other apostles, including the noted Peter. Now, I'll stop right there and I'll say that Peter is an important figure. I wish that we had recorded the Acts studies, but we didn't have the camera system at the time. We will do Acts again. We're going to go back and do that because it needs to be recorded. And it's an important book to understand the relationship between Peter and Paul. I'll give you some of the information right now. People will email me, do you have your notes on Acts? And I'll give them everything I have, which are very limited, but it gives the important stuff, the stuff, and I'm not saying that the other stuff is important, I'm saying about the understanding of the connection between Peter and Paul. If you are in the book of Acts and you start reading, you start reading from what location? Israel. Israel. Where in Israel specifically? Jerusalem. Okay, you're starting in Jerusalem. When you finish the book of Acts, the very last place that you are at is where? Rome. You go from Jerusalem to Rome. You are going from the Gospels. You are going to the uh, book of Romans as the first epistle. So you see there's already a little pattern starting to develop. You've got Israel. You've got Rome. You've got uh, beginning in Jerusalem, ending in Rome. I meant to say you've got Romans, the Gospels and Romans. Okay, And then from there, you've got the first 12 chapters of Acts. And who is the center of the first 12 chapters of Acts? Peter. His name is mentioned. I'm going to make this up, but it's a lot. It's like 250 times, okay? He's mentioned again and again and again. Paul is known by his name Saul, and he's mentioned a couple times, okay? He is being set into the narrative, but there's no highlighting on him. If you go from uh, chapter 13 through chapter 28, Paul is the central focus of the narrative. He is all over it, and we'll say that he's there 250 times, and Peter is mentioned once or maybe twice or maybe not at all. I don't remember. I've got all the numbers written down. I just don't remember off the top of my head. But you're seeing a pattern here. Everything that Peter does, Paul does in his chapters. Peter says something about silver and gold. Paul says something about silver and gold. Pa uh, Peter heals a blind person. Paul heals a blind person. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. It, it, the patterns keep going. There's like 50 of them where the exact same thing. Peter will give a discourse, and then after that, a certain thing will happen. Paul will give a discourse, and after that, the exact same thing will happen. It, it, the patterns are marvelous. And that's just a couple of the patterns. I mean, there are, Acts is so intricately woven together that it is incredible. But the whole point that I'm making, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul. There is a transition from the apostle to the Jews or the circumcision to the apostle to the Gentiles or the uncircumcision. 
okay? It is the same gospel message. We're not hyper-dispensationalists here. It's the same gospel, but the focus of the gospel moves, and the person who is heralding the gospel moves, and the reason why is because God is preparing to do what to Israel? That's right. He's preparing to boot them out. They rejected his son. They have neglected to come to the prophet like Moses that was prophesied, and they nailed him to the cross. They very limited, a very small number of Israel repented of this and became believers in Christ or their Messiah, And but the nation as a whole was exiled. And so the next 2,000 years, unbeknownst to anybody until it happened, is that Israel would be under punishment and under exile. They have not been rejected by the Lord. We're not replacement theologians here. They are under punishment for a set amount of time while the Gentile-led church age is being conducted. And the pattern there then follows from the ending of Acts, where that transition is made, right up to the end of the time of Israel, too. I mean, Acts ends about the time that the Jews are dispersed, okay? The first book is Romans. The last book of Paul is Philemon. Those are the Gentile-led church-age epistles. That is our marching orders for this dispensation. Immediately after that comes the book of Hebrews, and then James, and then Peter, all directed to the Jews. And you can make the logical assumption, I've done it on the board, and I'll do it again sometime, probably when we're in Acts, that those epistles, Hebrews and uh, James and, um, what did I say, Peter, those are directed to the Jews of the end times. And if you read them from that perspective, they make all the sense in the world. And then from there, you have John which is like the Gospel of John. It's not one of the synoptic Gospels. It matches in content where it is written to both Jew and Gentile. The three synoptic Gospels were written under the law and only speaking about events that would happen to Israel or that did happen to Israel. John is not that way. John is a uniting of the Jew and Gentile. You've got that. And then Acts shows why that uniting took place. The um, Paul's epistles come into place for the church age. Then you get the end times events with um, the uh, the uh, Jewish epistles. And then you come to John and Jude, which are written to all believers, just like the Gospel of John is. It's a marvelous pattern. And then the pattern repeats itself again in the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Revelation are written to the church. They are written to the Gentile-led church age. Go look at the names of them, Philadelphia and Sardis and Laodicea. They are Gentile areas, Gentile-led church age. And then from there, verse 4-2, it goes to the Jews, and it goes all the way through Revelation 19, verse 10, when the church returns with Christ. And after that, then you have the joining together of the the uh, bodies together at the end of the times from Revelation 19, 20, 21 off into eternity. The pattern is astonishing to see, and it is based, believe it or not, on a prophecy that Noah made to his sons just after his son Ham did something dirty to him. He comes and he makes a prophecy over his sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and that prophecy outlines the structure of what I've just told you here. It's a wonderful study. We're not going to get into it, but the reason why I'm telling you that is so that you understand that what Peter is being addressed by Paul in this particular epistle now is to show us that Peter, this great apostle to the Jews, was just as fallible in his approach as anybody else, and Paul had to call him out on that. That's all that talking to get to this point right here. With that understood now, in this visit to Peter, this is Paul going down to Peter, he notes that he was there with him for 
15 days. Again, this, was, uh, this is important to understand because it established the fact that this extremely short time was insufficient in length for Paul to have somehow obtained his apostleship by Peter or by anyone else, okay? That would not have happened in 15 days, okay? When I was ordained, it took a long process, actually a couple of years, but uh, the church that ordained me, it was a little bit over a year. But um, the whole process took, I, I don't know, three or four years to get ordained. Now, if you want to get ordained, this is something everybody, you want to get ordained today, Burke, go online and you can get ordained online for $25, okay? You can get a certificate and you can go out and start preaching tomorrow. I don't recommend that uh, avenue. You want to be ordained by a real church that actually holds to the Bible, etc. But um, the point is that there was not time for him to have been considered an apostle in that time. Okay, there would not have been time to evaluate him, to test his sincerity, place the needed trust in him, and commission him. Paul himself, while speaking to Timothy, shows that granting a commission after such a short time is imprudent. And that is found in 1 Timothy 5. Let me read that to you, just so you know that he said that to him. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and he says there in verse 22, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. In other words, you don't want to just say, oh, we've got this great guy that knows his Bible really well. He's coming into the church. We need a deacon. Let's ordain him. Don't do that because a lot of people may know the Bible very well and they might not have any heart at all for the Lord. If you want proof of that, go attend any Christian college in America and evaluate the professors. And there are always professors in there that know the Bible really well. And after you get to know them, they don't really believe the Bible. Okay, even in the seminary, the Bible college and seminary that I went to, I knew professors like this. They knew the Bible. They knew theology better than I will ever know theology in my life, and they did not believe the Bible. Southern okay. Poverty. What's that? The Southern Poverty. Uh, oh, yeah. SPLC, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah they're gross, too. Anyway, um, so you, you just don't lay your hands on people hastily. That would have been something that the apostles would have taken a lot of time to get to know Paul. Paul, uh, uh, yes, Paul, Paul is establishing that he was made an apostle by Christ himself. He wasn't made an apostle by anybody else. Finally, during his 15-day period, Paul stayed with Peter, but he did not spend all of his time with him. This is evidence as found in Acts chapter 9. Let me take you there really quickly so you can see where that is. Acts chapter 9, in verse 28, it says, So he was with them, meaning the apostles, at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Okay, so he didn't spend all of his time with Peter. He was out telling people about Jesus, probably went to see his old friends at the uh, Sanhedrin, and he said, hey, guys, I know Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And they're like, what are you talking about? And so, I mean, they did not have nearly enough time to do an evaluation of him. Paul has methodically given the record of his conversion to demonstrate that what he preaches is both sound and it is on an equal footing with that of even the most noted of apostles. When a challenge is made to the true gospel, he was willing to go to almost unimaginable efforts to protect its purity, and we're going to see that as we go into chapter 2. This will be seen, as I say here, as the epistle unfolds. Paul is not willing to compromise the gospel. Unlike the people that were with Jesus and they saw him and they were, you know, they understood his mercy. They saw Peter get forgiven after denying Christ three times. 
I'm not saying that they were weak in any way, shape, or form, but they understood that they, if they fell away, that the Lord would not fall away from them. Paul saw everything completely differently. He saw a risen Christ that he had been persecuting that blinded him, and he had three days to sit there and think about all of the theology that he had been raised in, and he realized that I am going to commit my life to this king of the universe forever, and I'm not going to yield an inch. And you can see that all the way through Paul's writings. He never yields the gospel. Life application. We are being given a continuous stream of verses which clearly established Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles and one whose message is to be adhered to as doctrine for the church age. The pattern I just gave you, it's marvelous if you lay it out, just lay it out and do what I just did, or we can do it on the board again sometime if you don't know what I'm talking about. You will see how beautifully structured it is. Of course, this is why Paul's letters are attacked continuously today by legalistic Judaizers such as the Hebrew Roots Movement and other Messianic groups. I'm not down on all Messianic groups. There are many of them that hold to the gospel. They understand the grace of Christ completely. And if they are Jewish and they don't want to eat pork because that is their culture, that's one thing. If they come to you and say, you shouldn't be eating pork because it's outlawed in the law of Moses, that is another thing. And you have to make sure that you are willing to make the distinction between the two. Because if you're not, then you are a part of the problem. And the problem is very big in Christianity, It's and it's blossoming. It, like everything else, you know, Mormonism didn't start out with how many Mormons are there? 10 million? I mean, it didn't start out with 10 million people. It started out with one lunatic that went out and made a claim, and he got people to follow him, and the message spread. Eventually, he was killed, okay? And then from there, they went out to Salt Lake City, and they have spread this poison around the entire planet, Okay. The Jehovah's Witnesses did not start out with how many people they have today. It started out with one man named Charles Taz Russell, who denied the deity of Jesus Christ. He said he's a created being, and their theology has been completely off ever since, okay? You have to understand that the Bible is very clear about certain issues, and the Hebrew Roots Movement has started to blossom in this world, and it's I don't understand it other than the fact that Israel's back in the land and you can look at all these Jewish people and say, oh, they must be specialists. They understand Hebrew and they understand Greek. And, you know, whatever thinking is going on in the minds of people, it is incorrect thinking. We need to stick to the doctrine which is set forth in the Bible, and that is that there is a new covenant which is set aside the old covenant. Most important thing, I've said this, I even said this one time about two years ago. I think of it. I think of it a lot when I'm out cleaning or something. That I said, if you ever hear me say that we should obey a part of the law of Moses, you need to immediately get up and leave the church and not come back. You know, I almost did it one time, just kiddingly, and I thought I shouldn't even do that. You know, you know, just just to make a, a funny joke. It is that serious. There is no harmony between people that adhere to the law and people that are in the new covenant grace. There's none. Okay, what they need is they need instruction. Most of them will not hear it. They've been trained just like Mormons have been trained, and they're not willing to look into the theology. So please understand this. Don't ever get sidetracked by that type of thing. Okay. Paul is also diminished by countless other churches as well. By weakening the authority of Paul's letters, one is left with nothing but a convoluted religion that will inevitably fall back on works-based salvation. Please hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that we are saved by grace alone through faith 
alone. There's nothing else you can do to be saved, and there's nothing else you can do to continue to be saved. Because when you're saved, you're saved. Christ has saved you. He has pulled you out of the pit of death, which is the imputation of sin. You are no longer being counted sin. I don't understand how somebody could think that you could lose that, but that is the prevalent idea in people's minds, is that I have to start working to keep the salvation I was given. And that is exactly what Paul is going to continue to talk about in the book of Galatians. He's going to say, you started this way and now you're doing this. We'll be there soon. Go ahead, verse 19. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Okay, very short and simple. The wording of this verse is rather difficult to be dogmatic about. So we don't want to bark out any incorrect conclusions. That was a joke. Dogmatic yeah, bark. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, there are logical conclusions we can make as we evaluate its words. The first problem is the standing of James. Paul says that he saw none of the other apostles except James. This can be taken in one of two ways. One, I saw none of the other apostles with one exception, James. James is the only other apostle that Paul saw. Or two, I saw none of the other apostles, but I saw James. Of the apostles, Paul only saw Paul saw only Peter. He now also saw James. Okay, so that's the two possibilities there. The second makes less sense because there would be no reason to mention seeing James if he were of no direct importance to the narrative in an apostolic capacity. Paul is refuting the apostles in this letter. And therefore, any mentioning of true apostles is what is to be considered bearing on his words to the Galatians. Therefore, it can be inferred that James is an apostle. However, it does not logically follow that he is one of the twelve. If he were, then it would be probable that he would be noted as such. Rather, it is possible that he is an apostle in the wider sense of the word, just as Barnabas is noted in Acts 14.14. 14. Um, oh, well, that's all right. She'll get it. Acts 14, 14. Um, I saw my wife walk by the door, so she's obviously out there doing something. But Acts 14, 14 says, But the, when, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. So Barnabas was called an apostle. Okay? The reason why this is so complicated is because of the final words of the verse, which designate him as James, the Lord's brother. If one believes in the perpetual virginity of Mary, a wholly unscriptural tenet, then this cannot be a literal brother of the Lord, unless he is a son of Joseph from a previous marriage. But there's nothing in Scripture to indicate this, and it needs to be read into the Bible. Other views are, one, that the word brother means a cousin. Two, that this is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the twelve noted in Matthew 10.3, or three, that it is James, the son of Zebedee, who had not yet been killed with the sword. Okay, those are your three options there. If this is not one of the twelve, then this would exclude the two apostles, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Zebedee. If it is one of the twelve, then the term the Lord's brother seems to be an unusual term of designation. It would imply that one is considered a brother of the Lord, while the other wasn't. You see, this is a complicated verse, and it didn't seem like it at first. It seems like, oh, that's easy to answer. What seems the most logical, and without inserting anything into the Bible in order to come to a conclusion which the Bible cannot fully support, 
is that the answer is that this is a literal brother of Jesus, born of Joseph and Mary after the virgin birth of Christ. This is why in Acts 12, verse 17, James is noted separately from the brothers by Peter. He is named James, but is not one of the twelve. That he is an actual brother of the Lord would follow naturally from the words of Matthew 1, 24 and 25. Let me take you there. We'll read that. It's important to understand these things. I know it sounds like nitpicking, but understanding all these little uh, nuances help us to get a right understanding of what Paul is referring to. So, Matthew 1, 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Here it is, verse 25. And did not know her, the term know in the Bible means to be intimate with, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The implication is very clear there that Joseph did know Mary after the birth of Jesus. Okay, the Catholics have completely destroyed the meaning of many things in the Bible by claiming that Mary is a perpetual virgin, that she never had a man, okay? They've destroyed the intent of the Bible, all right? But um, one of the things that people don't understand, I might as well bring it up right here, is that um, uh, the term immaculate conception. I know most of you know this because I brought it up before. Ma immaculate conception is not speaking of the virgin birth, okay? Uh, it is uh, speaking of, hang on, the virgin birth. Immaculate conception is saying that Mary is without sin. She was born without sin, okay? So you want to make sure that you get the two things correct. Immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus. It has, a, it's a Catholic introduction to say, and the way they get around this is they say that um, uh, God kept her from being born in sin. And they made a little uh, mental diagram for you to understand. Okay, we are all born in a hole. The hole is sin, okay? Mary was, there's the hole, and God just kept her from being in the hole, okay? So she didn't go into the hole of sin. She was kept from it. Okay, there's a real problem with that. If Mary was kept from the hole of sin, if, yeah, then why didn't God just do that for everybody, okay? It makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. The doctrine of immaculate conception is in, given in order to justify the Roman Catholic doctrine of the, the perpetual virgin, and they can worship her, they can pray to her, all of the things that you're not supposed to do, but it is it causes several theological problems. The major one is that if God did that for Mary, then he could do it for anybody, and that means that we really don't need a Jesus, okay? That's what it comes down to in a nutshell. We don't need Jesus because God can do it, and if he chose not to do it for somebody, then you're right back to predestination by the Calvinist view, which is completely incorrect. Calvinism ties in with Catholicism in that regard. It's making something out of Scripture which is not stated there, and it is then causing a problem in Scripture that affects other doctrines elsewhere. Both Catholicism and Calvinism do that. Okay, yes, I've got somebody that's raising their hand. One, uh, with Magnificent, Mary says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God. My, my Savior. Why would she say that if she didn't need a Savior? That's exactly right. And there are other evidences like that one. We could get into a whole hour of Mary here, and I'm not going to, but just understand that the theological problems that are raised with uh, arise with 
uh, Immaculate Conception are very similar to some of the problems that arise in Calvinism. They cause a problem that uh, actually diminishes the work of Christ. So it, it's a big study. It's too much to get into right now. But understand that that is what Paul is being very precise about James now, as he did with Peter for a reason. And we have to determine what James and why. Okay, the Bible says that Joseph did not know her, meaning Mary, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. The meaning is evident on the surface. Joseph knew or had relations with Mary after Jesus' miraculous birth. Any other view is entirely forced, and it is only given to elevate Mary in an unhealthy way. What does Hebrews 12, 2 say? Let us fix our eyes on Mary. No, that's right. It's Jesus. I'm glad everybody here but me got that right, and I was wrong, and I repent. Okay, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We are not to fix our eyes on Mary in any way, shape, or form. Okay, she was mentioned a couple times in the gospel. She's mentioned one time in the book of Acts, and that is it. No more Mary. Okay, this has led down uh, a very sad path for those who have taken their eyes off of Jesus and fixed them on her. There are actually, if you go online and just type in Marianism or Mary worship, you won't believe some of the sites. I'm not kidding. You talk about a cult, it is way worse than anything you can imagine. It is unbelievable. Just go in and do some prodding around and look at some of the Catholic sites that are devoted to Mary. Very, very serious stuff. Okay, it is the it is this James, the Lord's brother, who was later to be the leader of the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, and also the author of the book of James, which is the 59th book of the Bible. Life application. There are passages which are very confusing in the Bible, like this verse right here. It just is. Further, there are things that people intentionally want to believe because of a presupposition they hold to. However, with a thorough study of what is related to a confusing subject, a logical conclusion can normally be made, which is supportable by the rest of the Bible. Be diligent and be sure to carefully evaluate the Bible without getting caught up in unscriptural tenets simply because somebody says that something is so. Check, verify, and be ready to accept what is written when all of the evidence is in. And once again, I've given my best analysis of that verse. There are other scholars, if you go and read, I'm sure they'll come to different conclusions. I'm trying to give you the best information I can because Paul is being precise for a reason. And when he does that, it's for us to understand the reason why and to understand exactly who he's talking about. So we're in verse whatever. Next. 120. Uh, I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Well, that was pretty short. Let me see. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Okay, uh, this one in the New King James Version is set off in parentheses. Is it the same over there? Um, no, okay. Well, they've got it in parentheses here. So, Okay, um, the verb Paul uses is in the present tense. In essence, the things I am writing to you, this then covers all of those things which he has relayed of which those in Galatia would have no way of easily verifying. It covers from verse 13, which we started with today, through the end of the chapter, and then on through more events recorded in chapter 2. When I say we started today, that's where Jim started reading from. It was the beginning of a paragraph. However, it more especially starts with the thought beginning at verse 15. This begins the focus on his calling as an apostle and the fact that the gospel he preached was derived not from men, but from God. The reason for this oath 
is that he is building a case against the false apostles. In doing so, he must verify for them the truth of his own calling and the divine source from which it came. I'm talking about them, I mean the Galatians. He's verifying for them his calling and the source of it and, um, yeah, his calling and divine source from which it came. Having said that, they already knows these things. He's the one that led them to Christ in the first place, okay? He's reminding them of this. He's reestablishing a baseline that should not have been crossed. That's the whole point of this. Paul is heartbroken over what's happened in Galatia. He's heartbroken over the attitude of the people. He's heartbroken that people have crept into the church. I just started um, typing the book of Jude uh, four days ago. Uh, we're still publishing 3 John, but I started publishing Jude. I think it was three days ago, and uh, I typed Jude 1-3 this morning. might have been 1-4. Anyway, um, uh, that book is a warning. It's a warning. It's the subject matter of the book of Jude is contending for the faith. Okay, and he's going to come in there and he's going to talk about people that have silently crept into the church and they're doing this and they're doing that. That's what's happened with Paul as well. There's nothing different there than what's happening in the book of Jude. People come in and they bring in things that are inappropriate and they just keep pushing them in a little bit at a time. Nobody sees it happening. But as Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And so he's got to go and get all of this leaven out of the church that he established because people were not careful or they didn't pay heed. They heard the gospel, they loved it, and all of a sudden they started going off on a sad path. Now understand this, what Paul is saying to these people does not affect these people's salvation, okay? He's not going to question the salvation of the believers, but it will cause the next group of people to come into that church to never be saved at all. Okay, that is the important part to remember there. Okay, so the reason for this oath that he is binding, a case, he's building a case against the false apostles. In doing so, he must verify for them the truth of his own calling and the divine source from which it came. This oath is quite similar to that which he made in Romans chapter 9. Oh, here, I got it written right here. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so, in as solemn a manner as he can possibly present himself, he says, Indeed, before God, I do not lie. There's nothing more sure that you can get out of a person than that. If he's lying, I got to tell you, he's accountable to the Lord God for that. And he's not going to lie about something like this. The words he has been writing and those he will continue with are either truthful or they are a lie. If a lie, then nothing else he has said can be held as reliable either. But remember, these people can easily go and verify everything he said. He can go to the source. They can send somebody down to Jerusalem and ask them if it's true. They could go to Damascus and see, is the synagogue there? And did Paul really convert at this place, etc., etc.? None of this is unverifiable, but he is telling them this so that they don't have to go to these pains. In other words, his words here are either an anchor, which holds fast for the entire epistle, and as a refutation of the false apostles, or they are the cunning deception of a man who is willing to even pronounce a curse upon himself in order to deceive. I mean, that would take a lunatic to do that. Okay, um, verses 1, 8, and 9. We'll go back there and read that. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He included himself in that. But if we 
as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He called the same curse down on himself as he did on anybody else. He's being just as fair as he can about this particular issue. Paul has put himself out in a spiritually exposed manner for the Galatians to evaluate him and the truthfulness of his message. Though it would be difficult to determine the truth of some of his claims, many could be validated by the testimony of those who had walked with him in the past, including Barnabas. Only a fool would make such claims if they weren't true. This is especially so because they are in writing and could be referred to at any time. Because of this, it adds weight to the fact that they are, in fact, true. And here's the funny thing about this. We got people that lie right through their teeth in the church, in politics, etc. And it's so easy to verify. And it shows you people are not willing to do that. We got people that just stand up and blatantly lie. They blatantly lie. And the people that support him will just ignore it as if it didn't happen at all. We got a person that's running for the presidency right now that has openly lied. It's recorded. It's kept right on. You know, you can go on YouTube and open lies. And yet the people that support him just ignore it completely. We have that in the church where people will openly lie about something and the church ignores it. That happened to somebody, uh, a a very notable, uh, uh, I I better not. I'll get somebody upset and they'll send me a bunch of emails on it. But if you want to know who I'm talking about, I can send you the information. Somebody that uh, very notable and open lies. I mean, these weren't hidden or anything. I went to this college. I went to this, uh, uh, I got this degree from this thing. And he didn't. And this is somebody that everybody in this room knows personally. I'm not talking about personally, personally. I'm talking about that you've listened to. He's openly lied about these things, okay? And yet people ignore it because he's famous. I don't understand that type of thinking, but this is this is Paul calling down a curse on himself. These people have called a curse down on themselves for lying the way they have to further themselves in the church. I don't understand that, but that's what happens. Life application. On several occasions, the Bible tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, let our words be of such weight that when we speak or speak, those around us will know that they are the truth. We don't need to make an oath. At times, however, here it is, a matter may be of such importance that we must invoke God in our words. Invoking anything less than God is idolatry, and so let us never flippantly invoke God's name, and let us never invoke anything in creation when making a vow or an oath. Now, I take you right back. It's funny that we read that today because just last Monday, this past Monday, I typed Deuteronomy chapter 6 something. I don't remember the verse, but I know it's in Deuteronomy 6. And so we're going to find out where is that um, uh, doorpost speaking in the midst of great signs. I know I'm not in chapter 7 yet. So um, uh, commanded you shall walk in the ways of the Lord. Um, Lord, you go near and hear the Lord. Okay, I don't know. It's somewhere in here. And, um, uh, oh, no, no, six. I'm reading five. It helps to be in the right chapter. Okay, yeah. It uh, it says here, um, uh, where is it? You've got to be in the right chapter when you're reading things. And that's my dyslexia, always picking on me. Um, these words, teach them to your children. You shall bind them on your hands. You shall do that. Um, beware that you don't forget the Lord your God, and you shall not go after other gods. Here it is, verse 13, 613. Sorry, that took a while. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, 
and shall take oaths in his name. You know I'm going to give you a long talk on that when we get to that sermon in about eight or ten weeks. But just so you know in advance, people, I, I, there are people I know that I've had to correct on this, and they're thankful for it when I do this, but they'll email and they'll say, well, I know I'm not supposed to make oaths. Well, that's not correct, okay? Now, Jesus did say, let, let your yes be yes and your no, no, etc. I'm just going to give you a real short talk on this just because we're at that point in the book of Galatians is that um, some people will not like make an oath on a Bible in a court. Well, I'm not going to do that because the Lord says to don't do it. No, he doesn't say that. It says, when you make your oaths, you make them in the name of the Lord. You are not to make an oath on any other thing. Jesus talks about that. You're not to swear by the altar. You're not to swear by heaven because it's the uh, dwelling place of God. You're not to, to swear by the earth because that's the footstool of the Lord. I know I'm misquoting this. I'm just telling you the, pre the premise, okay? Don't swear by any thing. And the reason why, oh, don't swear on your mother's grave, okay? Because when you do that, you are raising that thing up to the level of God. It is what belongs to God alone. If you must vow, which Paul has shown us right here that there are times when you must vow, you are only to do it in the name of the Lord your God. That is the premise of the Bible. If I must make a vow, if I need to be binding so that people will understand that I am absolutely have nowhere else to vow to, I make the vow in the name of the Lord God, okay? Watch the sermon and you'll get more information from that, but I want you to understand that if you have been taught that, it is an incorrect premise, and it's something that filters all the way through the church. I mean, I've put uh, been uh, presented that many, many times over the years. It is an incorrect analysis. When you make your vows, you do them in the name of the Lord. That's, that's the short of it. Watch the sermon. Okay, so life application on several occasions. Uh, did I already read that? I think I did. Yes, anything invoking anything less than God is idolatry. So let us never flippantly invoke God's name and let us never invoke anything in creation when making a vow or an oath. Okay, we want our yes to be yes, we want our no to be no, and we want to speak the truth at all times. If we have to vow, we are only to vow in the name of the Lord. Okay, 121. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. That's it? I hadn't even found the verse, but yes, afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So there you go. It's a little longer in this one. Okay, yeah, it's extremely longer. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I was waiting for you to keep reading so I could find where you were at. And, okay, Paul's last words of explanation were found in the narrative of verses 18 and 19. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. After that came the parenthetical oath, claiming that his words were truthful, which we just analyzed. Now he continues on with the narrative saying that afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia. This is recorded in Acts 9, verse 30. Okay, we already were in Acts 9 once. We'll go there again. Acts 9, 30 says... When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Okay, so Tarsus. And where was? Okay, however, this yeah, seemed. Tarsus was in at Cilicia. Yeah, yeah, he's from Tarsus of Cilicia. That's where Paul is from. He went back home and he spent a lot of time there. I mean, like, you wonder what he was doing because he must have been twiddling his thumbs for years. Eventually, he got back on the ball of things, but for some reason, he went back there, maybe evangelized all the people in his hometown and started a church. It doesn't say, okay, but he did spend a lot of time there. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Paul's last word, where was I? Yes, that's recorded in Acts 9.30. 
However, this seems to be at odds with his words now. Acts says that he went to Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, but he says here that he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. There is really no difficulty in this. The word Paul uses for regions is clima. Does anybody hear anything there, clima? Climate, right, okay, the climate, all right. Very good, you're a Greek scholar today. Oh, yeah. It is also found in Romans 15, 23 and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 10. Vincent's word studies explains the meaning of this infrequently used word. This is a long explanation, that's okay, we got all night. Clima, originally an inclination or slope of ground, the supposed slope of the earth from the equator to the pole. The ancient geographers ran imaginary parallel lines from the equator toward the pole, and the spaces or zones or regions between these lines viewed in their slope or inclination toward the pole were climata. The word came to signify the temperature of these zones and hence our climate. In Chaucer's treatise on the Astrolabe, chapter 39, is headed description of the meridional line, L-Y-N-E, that's an old English one, of longitudes and latitudes of cities and towns from on to an, from one, there's an error there in the typing, from one to another of climates, spelled C-L-Y-M-A-T-Z. He says, the longitude of a climate is a line, it's all spelled very old English, so I'm sorry about this, it's hard for me to read, is a line imagined fro north to south, the space of the earth. It's all spelled wrong, you wouldn't believe it. Fro, the beginning of the first climate, unto the very, with two R's, end of the same climate, even direct against the pole Arctic. In poetical language, climbs is used for regions of the earth, okay? He got, took all that time to show us this, and then he cites Milton. Whatever climb, the sun's bright circle warms. So that's Vincent's word studies, and that's why I love him, is because he doesn't just give you a word and say this means this. He gives you all kinds of background information. Sometimes it's like this where it, if you didn't enjoy that, that's your fault. I love this kind of stuff. I love to read why words mean what they mean. Why do we use them today the way we do? And what was Paul thinking? Because that's the root of what this man was describing there. Go back and read it again. I know it was hard to imagine the words, but they're all in the really ancient English, and it's it's kind of fun to read it. But there you go. It's like um, uh, when I was growing up, we used to do things with words in the house. We called them stinky pinkies. Do you remember the stinky pinkies? And we'd make up. It was a, a game that my grandfather would make, and you had to say something like chair, and then you'd have to make a rhyming word that I'm thinking of. And you had to to guess the right rhyming word. You know. Um, then we did other things like um, grandma was really good. She's uh, um, fuzzy wuzzy. Remember that fuzzy wuzzy was a bear. Fuzzy wuzzy had no hair. Fuzzy wuzzy wasn't fuzzy. Wuzzy. Okay, there you go. So I, we did, that's my grandmother. She taught us all kinds of stuff like that. But um, uh, stinky pinkies. You'll, you'll learn languages in a different way when you do that kind of stuff. It seems like pointless, but it's not. That's how when we were young, we were taught, you know, how to do things, I guess. Whatever. You had something to say, didn't you? you were no. Gonna... no, okay. All right. The regions of Syria and Cilicia is a correct description of the place to which Paul went, the climb. He is giving a general area which covers the specific places that he afterward went to. Once again, 
The reason why I'm being specific about this is because if you read what I just read you from Acts 9 and you read his words here, you think there's a contradiction. And people will say that the Bible has contradictions in it because they stick with one version of the Bible. And they say, see, this doesn't match. But if you read the etymology of the words, he's using a special word there. There's no contradiction. This is why that's important. People think, oh, it's not important. It is important because people attack the Bible all the time. I was watching my friend um, uh, out in Arizona sent me a video on uh, Israel. This, there's a doctor that was doing a uh, talk, and I had it on double speed because I want to get things done, and I was working at the same time. But he was doing a talk about um, archaeology in Israel and the people that dismissed the Bible because of it. And then he went through the whole documentary hypothesis Wellshausen and the JEDP, if you know what I'm talking about. And these people, it's completely refuted. And yet people still hold to it. Sure. They still hold to it because it's the only thing they can hold to it. And the guy said exactly what I say. The reason why people want to dismiss the Bible is because they want to continue in their perverse lifestyles. That's the whole reason. They don't want to be accountable to God, and so they ignore God. And go takes it right to Romans 1. But if you study the things like these words, and this is why it's important. I know I said it a second ago. is because it will take care of contradictions that people bring to you. And you'll say, I know this isn't a contradiction. I don't understand why. Go back and look at the words. If it's a rare word, go to Vincent's word studies, and that guy has probably done a study so that you don't have this fret. Okay? Okay. The regions of Syria and Cilicia, I'll read it again, is a correct description of the places to which Paul went. He is giving a general area which covers the specific places that he afterwards went to. Again, Vincent's word studies gives the explanation. Syria in the narrower sense of the district of which Antioch was capital, not the whole Roman province of Syria, including Galilee and Judea. This district was the scene of Paul's first apostolic work among the Gentiles. Cilicia was the southeasterly province of Asia Minor, where Turkey is today, directly adjoining Syria, from which it was separated by Mount, I, I can't pronounce that word, Mapereus or something, and the range of Amanus. It was bordered by the Mediterranean on the south. It was Paul's native province, and its capital was Tarsus, Paul's birthplace. So once again, go look on a map where Turkey is, and you'll see where that is today. Life application. Taking time to refer to maps or descriptions, which we did all the way through the book of Galatians, I'm sorry, um, Acts. Taking time to refer to maps or descriptions of ancient borders while reading the Bible can be a helpful tool in understanding the biblical narrative. What I would do when I was going through the study on Acts with the class here, it was what, eight years ago or something, is every week when I was going through there, I would get out Google Earth and I would follow exactly where Paul was traveling or exactly where this guy was sent to. And you can see exactly where it is today. And they'll describe something that's unique, like uh, 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 an island that's sitting out, you know, with a, a strait between it and the mainland. And you can go there and you can say, that's it. Now, describe a harbor. And the harbor is not suitable for harboring in over the winter, right? I think, I can't remember the name of it. But if you look at the situation of it on Google Earth, you can see why. It's because the wind would be blowing into the harbor. So it's not a good place. And so they say, we want to move on and we want to get a better harbor. Follow maps while you're reading the book of Acts in particular, and it is marvelous. You can do it with um, uh, Israel too, but a lot of the places in Israel are harder to determine nowadays. It, you can still determine many of them, but a lot of them are very hard to determine. I'm telling you with the New Testament, when Luke says that there is a, a pass 
uh, where the, uh, the the two seas run through it. When where uh, on Malta, where the shipwreck was, you can see it to this day. As a matter of fact, Sergio Rota went there, and I said that is the spot. And he said, "What do you mean?" I he said, "Where?" I said, "Look." That's where the two seas run through it. It's marvelous to see because you got this little thing, you got another thing, and they're going through like this. So the Bible is reliable. Trust it. Believe me, trust it. It is reliable. That whole town, they stopped when they ship came down through there and stayed in there for like four days. I think That's right. Said. Fairfax, was it? No, no. no. Paul was I, I know. I'm trying. That... Grew up. It's, it says he gave him oh. leave. The, the captain gave him leave. Oh, that's right. That's right. When that's uh, what you're talking about is when Paul got off the boat and was given some freedoms. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I thought you were, I was thinking of something else, but you're right. You're absolutely right about that. And we'll go through Acts again. We may even stop and go back there at some point. I don't know. I, we got to get through some of these epistles though, because they're, they're so rich. Anyway, um, life application. Uh, yes, I've already given that. 122. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Okay, uh, here he uses probably the more Greek term, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Same thing, but one is one is a literal and one is a paraphrase. Okay, Paul continues with the surety that the gospel he preached was not of any human origin. After his brief trip to Jerusalem, he had gone to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. During and even after this, he was unknown by face to the churches of Judea. The verb is in the imperfect tense. Are you saying face? Face, yeah. Face. face. Unknown okay. face. Okay. That's correct. Like in the Old Testament, you know, the face of God, it'll okay. say before God, but it literally says in the face of God. Okay. The verb is in the imperfect tense, showing that he continued unknown in those churches. It went on. Singling out the churches of Judea shows that the message, even by this early time, had gone out to the areas beyond Jerusalem. This was probably within just 10 years of the ascension of Christ. Paul's face was unknown to those outside of the area of Jerusalem, and probably within Jerusalem itself, with the exception of those he met during his visit there or the people that he dealt with before he was converted. In other words, all the people that he rubbed shoulders with. They His, forget that face. Oh, they wouldn't know. <laughs> they would never forget that one. His final words concerning the churches in Judea are that they were in Christ. The Greek word for church here is ecclesia. It means an assembly. The term can be used when speaking of non-Christian elements as well. It can refer to the Israelites as a nation or individual synagogues. You've got to be careful with the word ecclesia. For this reason, Paul designates who he is speaking about, specifically saying that they are in Christ. Though there may have been other assemblies in and around Jerusalem, Paul's only concern is those who are true followers of Christ. Once again, if you hear the word ecclesia, please understand that all it means is a it means a called out assembly. It's very similar to the Hebrew word kahal, I think. Uh, the word, um, uh, is it kahal? Yeah, I think it's kahal. Um, yes, I'm sure it is. Anyway, and that's an assembly, whereas you've got another one, which is ehud, and that is a congregation. All right, so you've got different words in the Old Testament as well. And unfortunately, translations will often translate one one way one time and one one way another time, or both one way. And so you lose what is being said um, in the Hebrew. And they do the same thing in translations in the uh, Greek as well. But it's better if you've got two different words to go ahead and translate them differently if possible. 
anyway, um, let's see here. Did I read that? Um, yes, uh, the reason for his specificity, again, this is Paul being specific, is to show that his doctrine had not come from any of these sources. None of them. His doctrine, had, that's why he's making these points. I know that it seems like a lot of tedious information, but he is making these points to say, listen, you know that I was an apostle and I led you to Christ. And now I've got to defend this and I'm going to show you how I'm not an apostle. I'm not an apostle by Peter. I'm not an apostle by these churches. I'm not an apostle this way or this way or this way. He has to do this in order to establish the baseline of his authority to tell them what he is going to tell them. So once again, his doctrine was also unknown to those people with the exception of those in Jerusalem whom he had conferred with. All of this is building up his case for those in Galatia to consider. They had received a false gospel. And they therefore needed this detail to be assured that what they had heard from him was truly of the Lord and was both proper and untainted. Life application. And we're going to have time for one more after this. Following along the account of the book of Acts and then comparing it to the epistles shows a very precise timeline of events. Even if all of the events are not recorded in one place or another, they can be seamlessly combined into a clear and non-contradictory testimony to the reliability of Paul's testimony and his ministry. Be assured that his words are exactly what they claim to be. They are divinely inspired and for proper doctrine, okay? Or they are proper for doctrine. All right, 123. Uh, what's interesting, he's running into all these churches that already know the gospel he actually was the one who caused that yeah that's that's right he caused the I, I never thought of that but that's right he's saying that he's referencing these churches that knew the gospel and the reason why it was because of paul because paul had persecuted the church this little church in jerusalem and they had spread out because of paul's persecution so here very very good point there i'd never thought that one through they what? Insightful. Yeah, insightful. All right, go turning, ahead here. 23. Turning, turning evil oh. into good. Evil into good. Okay, they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Okay, a little different in the tense here, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted the church now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. I believe they're both present tense now. Okay, um, 124. They is referring to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, referred to in verse 22. They heard the word about Paul's conversion, and there was a distinct reaction to it. Instead of denial or suspicion, they glorified God in me. This is where such praise belongs. Unfortunately, as pastors or teachers grow in prominence, lesson for all of us, they become the object of the praise of people rather than our great God who placed them in that position. The almost idle worship of great orators or noted figures has gone on since the beginning. It finds its true peak in people like the Pope of the RCC or in other such large denominations. Followers make a point of attending a gathering held by one of these people, not to worship God, but to say that they were in the presence of such a person. I, I don't mean to pick on anybody because I got a lot of friends that have done this, but I went to this uh, city and I went to that church because I had to sit in the front row and, okay, if you're going to church, you go there for the word, not for the person, okay? That's um, just the way that it needs to be. Now, I know that the pastors appreciate that and there is something to be said. If you like the pastor and his doctrine, that's fine. 
But if you just like the pastor because he's famous, that is not fine. Okay, if the doctrine is sound, go to the church and sit in the front row and revel in it. Okay, I'm not trying to dismiss anybody's uh, appreciation of a fine Bible teacher or whatever. At the same time, just keep it in the right perspective. Glorify God because of that person's teaching, not the other way around or whatever. What? Oh yeah, a lot of people have come to visit here. All done it in the right way. Yes. Everybody's been like, oh, Charlie. Yeah, no, they come in and they they the. The shoes come off, and we all just have a nice time together. And Plus, they actually don't come for the Superior Word. They come here for the great weather and the good food in Florida and the beaches. And this is just an incidental stop. Oh, okay, anyway. All right, so um, be careful there. And then this continues on today with pastors of megachurches, TV evangelists, and those who are specialists in particular fields, such as Bible prophecy. Instead of praising God for what they hear, people laud praises on the one giving the message. But Paul would redirect us in such an attitude as any sound follower of Christ should. All right, life application. Let us praise God for the gifts that others possess, for the changes in the lives of those he has called, for the great mysteries that are discovered in his word, or for any other matter. Let us keep ourselves from making idols of anything less than God. And let us ensure that he alone gets the true praise and adoration for his marvelous greatness. Now, I'm not going to have time to do another verse. What's that? You, you served an awful lot of lettuce there in those last few comments. Yes, a lot of lettuce in those other few comments. <laughs> That's true. Oh, now, wait a minute. Was that, um, that was the last verse, wasn't no, it? No, you got one, one more. You got 24. 24. Yep. That was 24 that I just oh, read. That's 23. Well, I, I went to the wrong page again. Um, no, I did. Here, verse 23. I don't know how that happened because, um, yes, I did. We've got a um, Paul's mission, divinely inspired for proper doctrine. Okay, 123. I, I don't know how I did it, but I went to 24. So we're going to do 23 because I have time. What I want everybody to do is the words that I just read from 24 belong in 23 okay, okay. I, I don't know how that happened but 123 go ahead and read 124 and I'm going to give you the comment from 123 I apologize for that and they praise God because of me they that's what I was just talking about was them praising God because of him but the previous verse it said um, uh, they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy Okay, so I'm going to read you the comments from that. Those words they were hearing are tied directly to the words, I was unknown in verse 22. Though they never met Paul personally, they were continuously receiving reports about him. It was probably an amazing thing to have someone show up at the door of the church and start talking about the guy who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. The obvious reason is that they expected a different kind of knock on the door from that very same person. As he said, you know, Jim noted that Paul is the one that caused them persecution. Paul was known as one to persecute the church. And so with each new report of him out preaching the faith, it must have marveled the people immensely. The words, the faith of the verse we just looked at, at verse 23, not 24, does not refer to the faith that we have in Jesus as individuals. Rather, it speaks of the doctrine about Jesus, which is to be believed. In other words, the faith is that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. The word is used in the objective sense, something that continues on in the Christian world today. The faith of our fathers is the faith passed down to us. Paul's conversion may have had 
an immense strengthening effect on those scattered churches, and surely they would be willing to speak out more openly, knowing that God could change even the hardest heart. Life application for verse 23. Life application, if you have had a great conversion in your life, don't hide it from others. Be willing to share how God has changed you into a new person. Your testimony may be the very thing which will lead others to speak out boldly for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want to read the first uh, uh, word of commentary. Oh, I already did. We're good there. So we've got the two verses. What I want you to do is when you go home tonight and go to bed, I want you to say, take the comments from verse 23 and insert them in 24 and 24 and 23. And when you wake up in the morning, they'll be in the proper place. I apologize for that. I get sidetracked when I'm talking and uh, uh, I, I get my pages out of order. So there you go with that. We'll say a quick prayer and we'll close. And then we're going to start in a new chapter. We're finally in chapter two. Great stuff there. And we'll say a quick prayer and we'll be done. Hang on a sec. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet here in this uh, wonderful uh, building with the people here. The people are the church. The building is just a place where we can meet and we can fellowship. But it's a wonderful place you've given us. We're so thank you for this spot that's tucked away in uh, Little Strip Mall in Sarasota, Florida. And yet it has a uh, message which is going out to people around the world. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. We're so thankful that people are studying their word, not just here, but in other churches that are faithfully proclaiming it as well. And that they're growing in their doctrine and they're growing in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. How wonderful that is, Lord. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. And we just pray that soon you will come to take your church home. But we know that you have a time frame and we'll wait on it knowing that uh, it is better than our hopes. It is right for people to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so whenever that day comes, we, we will be ready for it. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 That burnt. He is. Uh, okay, we got break, and then we're going to go back.